0: Welcome to True Crime Works, a true crime podcast. This is episode nine, Ronald Jean Simmons. Hey everyone, welcome back to True Crime Works, a true crime podcast. This is episode nine, and we are going to be talking today about Ronald Jean Simmons, one of the worst family annihilators of all time. Before we get started with that, I did want to ask a favor. If you could, please give a five-star review on Apple Podcast for this podcast, that would be greatly appreciated. It helps others to find the show. Thank you so much, I really appreciate the support. Okay, let's get started on the case. A family annihilator is a type of murderer who, either in a single spree or over the course of several days, murders all or most of family members in their family. This would include spouses, children, parents, etc. Now, you've probably heard this term a lot recently because of the infamous Chris Watts case, where he murdered his wife and their two daughters because he pretty much didn't want to be married anymore and wanted to be a single man. The first reason is of course because of financial stress. This is where someone may become convinced that executing their other family members will spare them the stress and shame of being bankrupt. One third to one fourth of instances of family annihilation have a factor of financial stress. These murderers may appear respectable and well-off on the surface, but they become caught up in maintaining their image instead of asking for help, and their family is the one that pays for it. The second reason is motivated by the person desperately trying to remove themselves from a family situation that they think is intolerable. This could include after their partner announces they want a divorce after an affair, or the possibility of losing custody of their children. They panic and decide to take control of the situation in the only way they can think of, by killing all the members of their family. The third reason is psychosis. This could lead to hallucinations and delusions that lead to the death of the family members. The murderer may believe that a horrific event is about to occur And they may be able to save their family from the suffering by killing them first. They might also believe that they have heard a message from God telling them this is what they need to do. People who commit this kind of crime are usually both male and middle-aged. More often than not, they will kill themselves once they have annihilated their family. People who are not related to them are generally spared, so the crime is limited only to members of their family. Now, almost none of these apply to Ronald Gene Simmons. He committed the worst crime involving multiple members of a single family in the history of the United States. He was an outlier, a mass murderer who will go down in history. He killed 16 people. Sixteen. So let's get into a little bit of a background about Ronald Gene Simmons. He was born in Chicago, Illinois on July 15, 1940. He was born to Loretta and William Simmons. They named him Ronald Gene. When Ronald was only three years old, his father, William, sadly died of a stroke. Loretta went on to get married within the year to a man named William D. Griffin, Now, he worked as a civil engineer for the U.S. Army, and this would be a job that would cause the family to move from Illinois to Arkansas in 1946, and this was only the first of many military transfers that would cause the family to relocate. Now, Ronald did not seem to have a happy childhood. He really led a disruptive childhood. He was known for acting out and having behavioral issues from a young age. His younger brother would later describe Ronald as being a tyrant who bullied him throughout their childhood. Ronald would also hit his siblings, have uncontrolled fits of rage, and often refuse to say sorry or admit that he had been wrong. He had a fondness for manipulating both his siblings and his mom and stepdad. So he showed kind of narcissistic tendencies and a love for control that would continue through his life and into his adulthood. This was not the only aspect of Ronald's childhood that foreshadowed his adult life. When Ronald was in the second grade, his parents decided to move to the town of Hector, Arkansas. Hector had a population of 450 people in the 2010 census, So as you can imagine in the 1940s when Ronald's family moved there, it was much smaller and more rural than anything they had ever experienced before. They lived in an old farmhouse. It was so old that it did not even have running water and they had to drive 20 miles to get to the nearest small road. The family remained in Hector for several years. To many children this seems like torture. I know it does to me. But to Ronald, it was the opposite. He thought that life in the farmhouse, isolated from society, was paradise. For years to come, he expressed the desire to return back to the simpler life that he lived there. When he was 17 years old, Ronald Simmons dropped out of high school with the goal of pursuing a career in the U.S. Navy. He was initially stationed in Washington at the Naval Station, Bremerton. He attended a dance in Washington where he met a young woman named Rebecca Uliberry, known to her friends as Becky. Becky and Ronald hit it off immediately and would soon become an item. When Ronald was stationed away from Becky, they were in frequent correspondence. And they were married in New Mexico three years later. Becky was exactly the woman that Ronald had dreamed of marrying. In Becky's diaries and letters to Ronald, she lovingly referred to him as, quote, my Jean, and clearly doted on him, letting him control everything about their relationship, even when he was away. I mean, literally everything. He would set the schedule for their laundry, cleaning, and meals, all of which he expected Becky to carry out for him but it had to be done according to his schedule. Becky was given a small allowance and apart from this she had no access to their shared finances. But Becky was meek and obedient and noted in her diary that her husband probably knew better than she did about these things. Becky believed they were a poor couple just doing what they could to make it work with the small amount of money they had. But little did she know that they had much more money than she thought. But Ronald was the only one who was able to access it. He kept this from her as another way of controlling her. Unable to drive and totally financially dependent on him, Becky had become completely reliant on her husband. In 1961, Becky would give birth to the couple's first child, Gene Jr., who was given the nickname of Little Gene. Soon after, they had their first daughter, Sheila. Five more children followed in the years to come. Two sons named Eddie and Billy, and three daughters named Rebecca, Marianne, and Loretta. Ronald left the Navy three years after marrying Becky. He briefly worked at a local bank, which paid him very well. Of course, he hid this from his wife. However, there were some downsides to his short-lived banking career. Ronald's abrasive know-it-all attitude and his need to be in control of everything meant his coworkers and his supervisors disliked him immediately. So he was never promoted or given a raise. Looking for more success in his job, Ronald decided to continue his military career by joining the U.S. Air Force. He worked in the Office of Special Investigations in the Saigon from 1967 to 1968 during the Vietnam War. Unlike his brief stint at the bank, Ronald was highly regarded in the Air Force and was considered to be a model worker due to his efficiency and his adherence to the correct protocol. The same need for control that his family had to suffer for brought him a great degree of success in his military career. Ronald got used to the life of comfort during the years he spent there. He was rewarded for his services, receiving many privileges, such as a cook, a maid, and having his laundry done for him and delivered to his door. That sounds really nice. All the tasks he would expect Becky to do for him when he was at home. While he lived this life of relative luxury, Becky and their children lived in a small trailer that was on the corner of Becky's parents' property. Even while he was there, Ronald had complete financial control over Becky and would send her $40 a month to support herself and her children. Even back then, that is not enough money. When Ronald received time off work for the holidays, he would travel to Australia alone. All good things must come to an end, and Ronald's lifestyle in Saigon was no different. When he moved back home in 1968, he decided to move his family out of the trailer in Becky's parents' yard. After a brief period of living in San Francisco, they eventually would settle in New Mexico. Now, during this time, he began to feel especially nostalgic for the life his family had in the farmhouse in Arkansas all those years ago. He maintained a dream of living in an off-the-grid farm, isolated from the rest of society. The couple now had six children, and Ronald put the older ones... And Becky to work creating the form of his dreams. From the time the Simmons children got home from school to the time they went to bed at night, they were ordered to put up fences and build rock walls to achieve their father's vision. Over summer, when school was not an obstacle, they reported to work from the minute the sun rose until the minute it set. Wow, that sounds terrible. The long work hours were not the only change the Simmons family experienced after moving to New Mexico. Ronald insisted on keeping his wife and children as isolated as possible. This went as far as refusing to have a telephone in the house and forbidding his children from inviting their friends over. They had a mailbox, but it was locked, and Ronald, of course, was the only one that had the key. He read every single item of mail before the family sent it, and he read every single incoming mail item before deciding whether or not to pass it on. Just a side note here, this is starting to remind me of that book called The Great Alone, and it's about that father and who decides to move his family to this remote place in Alaska, and then he becomes obsessed with secluding them from everyone else in society. A friend of one of the Simmons daughters reported that Ronald always had a beer in his hand, and he had a bad smell and spent most of his time locked away in a small dark room. She is not the only person to speak of him this way. It seemed that no matter the town he lived in, Ronald Jean Simmons was not the person that others like to spend time around. The Simmons children and Becky led a life of hardship and poverty, but Ronald used his military income to treat himself well. He bought a Honda motorcycle for himself and then a Subaru truck to drive on the farm. Neither of these items were entirely within his budget and he had to take out loans from the bank and other relatives in order to pay for them. Becky was not aware of this, but she was unable to drive so the vehicles would have been of little interest to her. Becky gave birth to their seventh child, Rebecca, in 1977. By this point, Becky had given birth to seven of Ronald Jean's children, all of which had been underweight at the time of their birth. When Becky went to see her doctor, she was diagnosed with an underlying health issue that he believed would put her life in danger if she were going to through another pregnancy. Because of all this, he strongly recommended that Becky get her tubes tied in order to keep her from conceiving again. However, there was an issue. In the year 1977 in America, procedures such as this required the full consent of the woman's husband in order for the surgery to go ahead. Ronald did not consent. In fact, he was furious with Becky. Becky was terrified for her life and pleaded with him to allow her to get the procedure done. He finally relented, and she was able to get the procedure done, which likely saved her life. Following this, Ronald's treatment of her became significantly worse. In his eyes, she had put her own well-being over his desires, which was something that was unforgivable in his eyes. Meek, mild Becky had finally been pushed enough to stand up for herself, and the consequences were worse than she could have ever imagined. In November of 1979, Ronald retired from the military, where he was at this point ranked a master sergeant. He received the Republic of Vietnam Gallantry Cross, a bronze star medal, and an Air Force ribbon for excellent marksmanship over the 20 years that he was in the military. At the same time as he retired from the military, his treatment of one of his daughters changed. Sheila Marie, his oldest daughter, had always been his favorite of the seven children, and he was not shy about making this known. While his other children were frequently belittled and treated as workers, Sheila was coddled and referred to as Ronald's little princess. But around the time Sheila was 15, things began to take a turn. They began to take a very dark turn. He ignored his other children's request that he pay for meals and school supplies, and instead he directed all of his resources to Sheila Ronald was in the process of actively grooming his eldest daughter. He considered his wife to have betrayed him, and he no longer wanted to make sexual advances on her or even show her any sort of affection whatsoever. Sadly, soon he began to molest Sheila. And in March of 1981, Sheila was pregnant with Ronald's child, Sheila had a high school prom to attend, and because she was his favorite child, Ronald actually allowed her to go. Once she was gone, Ronald gathered all the family members together in a family meeting. He announced that Sheila was pregnant, but he did not give any information as to who the father was. There was someone who knew exactly who the father was, and that was Becky. Ronald's long-suffering wife. Ronald, like always, exercised complete control over the family members. He demanded that they accept the child and raise it just like an eighth sibling. While Becky did not argue with him or confront him during the discussion, she did become deeply depressed following the incident and was reported to have never fully recovered from this. Despite her not saying anything, somehow, the County Office of Social Services did receive a report that Ronald Gene Simmons impregnated his own daughter. This was reportedly because witnesses had seen him giving Sheila goodbye kisses in the morning before she went into school. These kisses were observed to be clearly much more than an innocent kiss between a father and a daughter. The office sent workers to question the family. In under questioning, Sheila admitted that her father had been molesting her and was undoubtedly the father of her unborn child. The Office of Social Services ordered each member of the family to begin counseling sessions immediately. This was wasted on Ronald, who seemed completely unapologetic for what he had done. During these sessions, he informed the counselor that he had molested Sheila to teach her, and that their inappropriate relationship was for her own good. Whether or not he truly believed this, he told the counselor he had done all of this to protect Sheila. Each one of the counselor's questions were dismissed by Ronald, who verbalized that he did not believe he had done anything wrong at all. Despite his bravado at his counseling sessions, he was also aware that Stevens. Sanders, who was the district attorney, believed that there should be harsh consequences for child abuse. So once Sheila had given birth to her child, who was Ronald's daughter and granddaughter, Ronald Jean Simmons planned for his family to make a quick retreat back to the isolated life he had dreamed of in Arkansas. So the family moved to Ward, Arkansas, where Sheila and Becky began to raise Sheila's daughter who the family named Sylvia Gail Simmons. Charges against Ronald for incest were filed, but eventually they were dropped after the family fled. Ronald Jean was not discouraged from his molesting of Sheila, and he soon impregnated his daughter once again. However, this time, his response was different. Although he was anti-abortion and spoke of having a pro-life stance, he secretly organized for Sheila's second baby to be aborted. Sheila had just turned 18 years old at this point. Sheila began taking classes at a local business school located in Little Rock, Arkansas. Ronald still doted on her and treated her far better than his other children, so he allowed her to attend business school with his permission. However, Sheila soon met a young man there. A fellow student whose name was Dennis McNulty. Sheila and Dennis began going on dates, and as soon as Ronald heard about this, he began to think of ways he could stop this relationship from occurring. He was extremely possessive of Sheila and wanted her to be exclusively his, both sexually and romantically. Ronald decided to deal with this issue in the same way he had dealt with her pregnancy by relocating the Simmons family again so he could just leave the problem behind. He quit his job without warning and decided to move to a 14-acre property located in Dover, where they lived in a mobile home. This housing was much more primitive than anywhere the family had lived in the past. In addition to not having a phone, They had to catch water for cleaning and cooking by setting up containers underneath the roof to catch rainwater. Wow. Their new home in Dover was dubbed Mockingbird Hill by Simmons, who felt it was the home he had dreamed of for all these years. Mockingbird Hill was 15 miles outside of town and located in an isolated and deeply wooded area. The house was at the end of a driveway made in red clay, and instead of it being a single house, it was two rickety mobile homes. The mobile homes were barricaded together with scrap material and barbed wire into some sort of fortress that the family called home. To Ronald, it was not squalor. It was a kingdom, a kingdom he was able to rule over completely unchecked. The rambling driveway had several no trespassing signs that Ronald created to increase the family's isolation from the outside world. It was reported that the red clay driveway was near impossible to enter during slippery or icy conditions. The areas dubbed the yards were maintained by the children and they were covered in piles upon piles of scavenged junk that Ronald maintained were necessary building materials so that they could continue adding to their home several abandoned cars were kept on the property the property was surrounded by a fence again built of scavenged scrap material which it was reported to be up to 10 feet high in some places just like he had at their house in new mexico ronald had a vision of turning this property into a farm where he and his family could be self-sufficient and isolated from the rest of society however The property was covered in rocks and very overgrown, so he had to make his children physically labor once again to try and achieve his dream, of course. However, things were different this time. In New Mexico, Ronald had a well-paying civil service job, which left him with money and resources he needed to create the property of his dreams. But when he left his job without handing in his notice, he was already in a great deal of debt from purchases and loans he had not repaid. These factors meant he was unable to get another well-paying job. Forced to make ends meet, Ronald began taking up a low-paying job at a law firm working shifts as a clerk. However, this job was short-lived. One of his co-workers at the law firm, a woman named Kathy Kendrick, complained to their supervisor that Ronald was persistently hitting on her and making her feel uncomfortable, and he refused to back down when asked. Shortly after this, he was fired. After losing his job, Ronald filled his spare time with stockpiling junk and salvaged item that he needed to complete his building projects. He collected piles of pallets, sheets of tin, and various car parts. Ronald's two oldest sons, Little Gene and Billy, decided to move out and start families of their own. Ronald was powerless to control them, but he had no choice to let them go. Then came an even harsher blow to Ronald's ego. Sheila announced that she, too, was going to move out. Not only this, but she was going to marry her boyfriend, Dennis McNulty, who she kept in contact with ever since her family relocated. Sheila told Dennis about the real father of Sylvia, and Dennis, now aware of the dark secret, promised to love Sylvia as if she was his own. Aw. He said that if Sheila married him, he would legally adopt Sylvia and act like a father to her. Ronald, of course, did not like this, and he begged Sheila to sit, but she refused. Ronald already had a tight ruling over his remaining school-aged children, but the iron fist became even tighter after the older children left home. The Simmons children were almost never allowed to attend school functions, and they were certainly never allowed to stay over at friends' houses, and friends were never allowed to visit Mockingbird Hill. This meant that the strange makeshift structure of the mobile homes went unnoticed, and no outsiders were able to venture far enough into the property to see what was going on. School officials who commented on the Simmons children reported that they had only noticed the children were clean and well presented and that they were always on time to catch the school bus in the morning. Certainly none of the Simmons children were exceptionally smart or diligent with their studies, but they also called no attention to themselves by getting bad grades or falling behind in school. There was not a single record of disciplinary action for any of his children on their attendance records or anything like that. They pretty much went to school every single day. However, it seemed that they tended not to mingle with anybody outside their family. Teachers reported that they did not know much about the children despite the small size of the school. Somehow, Loretta, Marianne, Eddie, and Rebecca managed to go through their school lives almost invisible. With his eldest son's and favorite daughter gone, Ronald began to feel like he was losing control, a feeling that he did not like. He bought himself another gun, despite his lack of money. He was working a poorly paying job at a local mini-mart, which he maintained for about a year and a half. During this time, he became more cruel to his wife, Becky, and began to physically abuse her, as well as the emotional abuse he caused to her. With his eldest sons and his favorite child gone, Ronald began to feel like he was losing control, a feeling that he absolutely hated. He bought himself another gun despite his lack of money. He was working at a poorly paid job at a local mini-mart which he maintained for about a year and a half. During this time, he became even more cruel to Becky and began to physically abuse her as well as the emotional abuse he caused her. Finally, Ronald decided to quit his job at the mini-mart where he worked. He officially quit on the 18th of December, 1987. He felt as if he was losing control over everything in his life, and he always thrived over a sense of control and power. Something had to change, and Ronald Jean Simmons was about to make that change. Little Jean and his three-year-old daughter Barbara were staying with Ronald and Becky for Christmas visit. On December the 22nd, after Ronald's school-aged children Loretta, Marianne, Eddie, and Rebecca left for school. Ronald calmly walked into Little Jean's room. He was holding a metal pipe in one hand and carrying his gun, a .22 caliber pistol, in the other hand. This began a chain of events that Ronald could not undo. He began to bludgeon Little Jean with the metal pipe. When Jean failed to succumb to his injuries, Ronald then shot him several times until he was dead. In the neighboring bedroom, Becky was playing with her granddaughter Barbara and she listened to all this. When Ronald walked in on them, Becky began to plead for their lives. Just like always, Ronald had no respect for what his wife wanted and did not show her any mercy whatsoever. He shot Becky to death and then took Barbara from her arms. And this is another trigger warning because this is involving the death of the baby, so you might want to skip ahead if you don't want to hear this. Instead of bludgeoning or shooting Barbara, he used a fish strainer to strangle her until she was dead. Ronald then loaded the bodies of little Jean, Becky, and Barbara into his wheelbarrow, where he transported them outside into the garden. In the garden, there was a large pit that Ronald had made his children dig for months before. He, of course, never said what it was for. They had absolutely no idea that he was asking them to literally dig their own grave. He dumped the three bodies into the pit and poured kerosene over them. He believed that soaking the bodies in kerosene would prevent smells of decomposition from coming out of the ground, so that animals and people alike would not notice that the corpses were there. Then, once this was done, he walked back inside. Instead of mourning the family that he had just killed or panicking about the crime he had committed, Ronald spent an unworried day just drinking beer and watching television. He waited for his younger children to return home from school. When the four of them returned home from school, Ronald was waiting there in the front yard to greet them. He was grinning from ear to ear and told them he had a surprise for each of them, which they were to receive one by one. While the other children waited in the car and listened to Christmas carols together, Ronald took his children in one by one, beginning with Loretta, who was 17 years old at the time. There, he strangled her with the same fish strainer that he used to murder Barbara. After strangling her, he held her head down inside a barrel of rainwater to make sure that she was dead. He repeated the process with his other children, Eddie, Marianne, and finally Becky, while the remaining children waited for their deaths. Then... He deposited the corpses into the same pit where little Jean, Becky, and Barbara's bodies were dumped. Once he had repeated this process with four of the children, he laid the sheets of tin that he had collected over the top of the grave to prevent the animals from scavenging their bodies. Ronald was not remorseful at all. In fact, he was not done. His remaining children, Sheila and Billy, were going to arrive with their spouses and children for a visit soon. So once again, Ronald decided to wait. Four days passed while Ronald watched TV, drank, and smoked. Finally, his remaining son, Billy, and his wife, Renata, arrived for their visit along with their baby son, Trey. In the four days that had passed, it seemed Ronald had not developed any remorse or any change of heart, nor did he show mercy for Trey's young age. First, he dispatched Billy and Renata by shooting them until they were dead. He then moved their bodies until they were lying by the dining room table, covered with the jackets they had been wearing, as well as some of Ronald's spare bedding. And here's a trigger warning again for the death of a child. Only then did Ronald turn his attention to Trey, who was a baby, just like he had done with the other children. He strangled Trey. When the baby boy was dead, he wrapped his small body in a plastic wrapping. And instead of placing his body in the pit in the garden or next to his parents by the dining room table, He explicitly stored the infant's body in the trunk of one of the abandoned cars that was parked around the property. Once again, Ronald waited. There were only four remaining members of his family, his favorite daughter, Sheila, her husband, Dennis, as well as his daughter-slash-granddaughter, Sylvia, and Michael, who was a child that Sheila and Dennis had together, who was almost two years old. Sheila's family was unaware of any horrors that awaited them. So they arrived at the Simmons family home for their visit. Sheila, despite being Ronald's favorite child, was not spared. He shot both Sheila and Dennis to death. Then he strangled both their children. He moved Dennis and Sylvia's bodies to lie next to Billy and Renata by the dining room table and covered them with jackets. Just like he had done with Trey, Ronald wrapped Michael's body in plastic sheeting, then stored it in the trunk of a different car from the one Trey was in. Sheila, Ronald's favorite, was given a different treatment. Even though he had just brutally murdered her... He lifted her corpse on the dinner table and then covered her up with his deceased wife's Becky's best tablecloth. Ronald did not panic, nor did he turn himself in. That afternoon, he just calmly drove into town. While he was there, he stopped to pick up some Christmas presents that he ordered from Sears but had not made it in time for Christmas. This was a bizarre turn of events as the family members he had ordered the presents for were already dead on his property. He then went out to a bar and drank alone. He spent the rest of the weekend at home, watching television and drinking beer after beer. He didn't move or interfere with the bodies of his family members. He just left them there. However, Ronald had more to do. On December 28, 1987, he got into a car and drove back into Russellsville with a gun in his hand. He purchased a second firearm from Walmart, then drove to the law firm that he briefly worked at as a clerk before he was fired for sexual harassment. And this law firm was called Peel, Eddie, and Gibbons Law Firm. Now, the woman that he had been fired for, for sexually harassing, Kathy Kendrick, was there working, and he shot her to death. This was just the first of Ronald's ex coworkers on his hit list. Next came the Taylor Oil Company, another ex-workplace of Ronald's. Here, he shot two people. An employee named J.D. Chaffin and the company's owner, Russell or Rusty Taylor. Rusty was injured but did survive, but J.D. did not. Before leaving the building, Ronald shot another employee, but he missed completely. After shooting J.D. and Rusty, Ronald drove to his next stop, the Sinclair Mini Mart, where he had worked for for a year and a half after his daughter Sheila moved out. Here, he shot and wounded two more people, Roberta Woolery and David Salyer. Neither of them received fatal wounds. With each place he visited, he became less and less accurate, giving his victims more of a chance of survival, more of a chance than anyone in his family would have. There was one final destination left on his hit list, the Woodline Motor Freight Company. When he arrived at the company, he wounded a female employee, Joyce Butts. Joyce had formerly been Ronald's supervisor, and she received wounds to her chest and head, but she did survive. Ronald then took another of the freight company's employees, Vicki Jackson, at gunpoint, although he didn't shoot her. He directed her into the computer office and ordered her to call the police to arrest him. She did as she was told, frightened that if she didn't, he would harm her. Due to his irrational behavior that day, the amount of random individuals had been shot, this was very likely irrational fear. Vicki reported that Ronald told her, quote, I've done what I wanted to do. It's all over now. I've gotten everyone who wanted to hurt me, end quote. After this, he made no attempt to shoot anyone else or flee the scene, although the police had been called and were on their way. Bizarrely, he just sat in a company's office chair and chatted to Vicky until the police arrived and arrested him. He surrendered his gun and went to the police without any argument or resistance, and he openly confessed to all the crimes he had committed. This was unusual for Ronald, who had historically always argued his case and insisted that he was always right. Finally, he was able to give up control, but it was too late for anyone in his family or Kathy or JD to be saved. Officers who attended the scene at the Simmons family house reported that from the outside, the mobile homes were a strange scene with a cluttered lawn of junk, bicycles, and old cars. The property seemed to be almost peaceful with its thick forest surroundings and near total isolation. However, the inside of the house told a completely different story. There was a beautifully trimmed and decorated Christmas tree in the living room. And there was also blood spattered walls and blood stained carpets where the family had been murdered. The local sheriff reported that his investigation into what exactly took place in the house was limited by how reclusive Ronald, Gene, and the rest of his family were. Ronald was reportedly said to have no real friends, not even any casual acquaintances, even after living in the small town for five years. The sheriff said they were having problems running across any relatives or people that really knew him. One of the owners of a local business, the market and gas company, said that Ronald would come in from time to time to purchase a paper or cigarettes, but he never really said a word to anyone. His rampage was finally over. He was arrested and charged with 16 counts of murder, comprising of 14 family members and two members of the public. He was then sent to the Arkansas State Hospital for evaluation to determine if he was competent enough to stand trial. The psychiatrist who assessed him, Dr. Irving Koo, found Ronald was both sane and competent to stand trial. Ronald was represented by public defenders John Harris and Robert G. Irwin. Ronald, who had been passive in his trial up until this point, seemed to be pushed over the edge. He yelled and physically assaulted the attorney, hitting him in the face and trying to steal the gun of one of the deputies in the courtroom. He was subdued by the police and then escorted from the room. This physically violent outburst served to further turn the court against him. On May 12, 1988, he was found guilty of 16 counts of murder and sentenced to death as well as 147 years in prison. They did this because it guaranteed that even if he was somehow able to avoid execution, he would no doubt spend the rest of his life in jail. Ronald did not argue with any of this or even try to appeal his sentence. In fact, he had a court battle where he argued for his own right to refuse the option to appeal his death sentence. He actually made a statement and it said, quote, To those who oppose the death penalty, in my particular case, anything short of death would be cruel and unusual punishment. End quote. This refusal to appeal his sentence made Ronald very unpopular among the other death row inmates. And this was to the point where he had to be kept separated from the others at all times due to the unrelenting threats on his life. And this was because almost all the prisoners wished to challenge their death sentences. And they believed that Ronald's refusal to do so meant it would be less likely that they themselves would be able to escape the death penalty. So, wow. On the 31st of May, 1990, A warrant for Ronald's execution was signed by the Arkansas governor, and this was Bill Clinton, who would later go on to be President of the United States. Ronald Gene Simmons was executed by lethal injection on the 25th of June, 1990. The time between his execution warrant being signed in May and his execution in June of the same year was the quickest turnaround between sentence and execution since the reinstatement of the death penalty. None of Ronald's surviving relatives, of which there were not many, opted to claim his body or pay for his burial. He was buried in Varner, Arkansas, in a potter's field where his body still remains today. And I didn't know what a potter's field was, but it's pretty much a where bodies of unclaimed people remain. As I said before, family annihilators typically kill because of financial stress, an intolerable family situation, or psychosis. It is uncertain which of these, if any, apply to Ronald Gene Simmons. From the start of his life, he definitely was a control freak and manipulated everyone around him. While some of his thought processes and feelings were very irrational, he killed his family members in a planned out way. It was not disorganized or anything like a crazed killer. Ronald planned the murders to make sure that nobody in his family was able to escape, not the infant children or the daughter he had molested throughout her childhood. Ronald also did not appear respectable, not even on the surface. While he did have a high military standing and achieved great success in his military career, His controlling and cruel nature was not only noticed by his family, but it was noticed by everyone around him. All of his workplaces reported that he was a control freak, and the county officials were aware of his incestuous relationship with his daughter, which resulted in a child. Ronald Gene Simmons was not a normal man, and everyone seemed to be aware of this, but yet nobody stepped in. Ronald may have killed due to his relationship with his daughter Sheila, This was hypothesized by the prosecuting attorney in court. He read the note from Ronald Jean to Sheila, which seemed to reveal a love-hate dynamic between father and daughter. This can be understood from Sheila's point of view, as she loved her father because he was, well, family, and she did visit him later, but she also hated him for molesting and abusing her. It must have been an incredibly confusing relationship to her. Ronald certainly favored Sheila over his other children and even over his own wife, but he also resented her for leaving him and for finding a husband, Dennis McNulty. Perhaps it is the perceived abandonment from Sheila that pushed him over the edge. In a letter to Sheila, Ronald wrote, quote, You have destroyed me and you have destroyed my trust in you. I will see you in hell. End quote. It seems so crazy to most people that a father's perception could be so warped that he feels betrayed by a daughter who has fled from him, while in reality, he was the only one who betrayed her by molesting her and refusing to accept the blame for impregnating her and making her birth his child. For a family annihilator, Ronald Jean Simmons was unusual in that he made no attempt to kill or harm himself following the murders nor did he seem to have a plan to do so. Perhaps his refusal to appeal his sentence was in his own way a form of killing himself, although he never voiced why he did not want the appeal. He was around the corpses of his family for almost a week, which did not seem to distress him at all, a trait that makes him stand out from other family annihilators, who more often than not tend to attempt suicide or self-harm very soon after committing their intended murders. While this could suggest psychosis, he passed the psychiatric evaluation and was deemed fit to sit trial from a psychiatric point of view. This would suggest that at least on the surface level, Ronald did not appear to be suffering from any kind of psychosis. He did not speak of any hallucinations, nor did he believe he was killing his family for any greater good or to protect them from a perceived evil. The only thing suggestive of a possible psychosis is the statement that Ronald Jean was reported to have made to Vicki Jackson of the freight company, who he threatened into calling the police once his crimes were done. He mentioned to Vicky that he had done what he wanted to do, but also that he had gotten everyone who wanted to hurt him. It is not clear if he was referring to physical harm or emotional hurt, So perhaps Ronald was suffering from the delusion that the people he killed wanted to, in fact, harm him. Ronald was also a control freak, so he could have viewed murder as an act of ultimate control, by controlling another person if they lived or died. Ultimately, he controlled his wife and their children for the entirety of their lives. But not only this, he controlled the way in which they died. It will never be clear why exactly Ronald Gene Simmons committed the crimes that he did. The murders are perhaps considered to be more horrifying due to the fact that there was no apparent motive. He never voiced a reason behind any of his actions or why he decided to attack multiple near strangers from his previous workplaces or why he did not spare the youngest children in the family. What's also really sad is that there were so many people that could have changed the outcome of Ronald's life. Perhaps if someone had just reported his abuse of Becky, or if the county had been more persistent in persecuting his incestuous relationship with Sheila, things would have been different. However, this all is just a guessing game. And really, the only one to blame is Ronald. The only person that was able to change this outcome was Ronald, and he chose the most horrifying outcome of all. Ronald Gene Simmons has gone down in history as one of America's worst mass murderers and largest cases of family annihilation. He is sometimes referred to as the hillbilly from hell. And those in Arkansas, as well as the rest of America, may still think of his crimes along the holiday season when they are celebrating with their own families. It's definitely enough to send a shiver down anyone's spine. So that was the Ronald Gene Simmons case. And wow, that is a very scary case. Thank you so much for listening to True Crime Works, a true crime podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you could, once again, please rate, subscribe, and review. This really helps others find the show. Also, remember to follow me on Instagram at True Crime Works. And if you have any ideas for upcoming cases, you can either send me a message on Instagram or email me, truecrimeworks at gmail.com. I look forward to talking to you next week.